read Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray. Lord, we are impotent in ourselves, and yet we look to the resurrection power of your Son to give us life, to bring forth new life, to give us the strength to go through each day. So would you even now, by that power, allow us to hear and have our hearts and minds overwhelmed in believing what your Son did. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, in case you didn't know, COVID-19 exists because of the 5G towers that have been installed around the world. Along with that, it was created by Bill Gates, so you would get a vaccine so they could put microchips in you so that you could be tracked by satellites. This all began because COVID was purposefully created by the Chinese government in a lab to be used in biological warfare. They did this because unbeknownst to them, the U.S. military imported it into their country because due to GMO foods, it's more easily able to be spread. This is all true except for the fact that COVID-19 doesn't actually exist. It was just made up by the deep state so that you would give all your money to big pharmaceutical companies. As well, have you noticed that no other country is having it as big as we are? And are they having elections this year? The party that you, fill in the blank, don't like, is doing this on purpose so that their party will come into power this November. Now, obviously, all of those theories can't be true at the same time. And I'm not arguing that any of them are true. If you believe them, that's up to you. However, for every one of those, for some which got smirks and some got grimaces and some, hey, maybe that's true. There are millions of people who believe them. There are people who purport these things. You know, the World Wide Web was supposed to be this great democratic tool.
tool by which all the truth could come forward and we could get rid of the old myths and stories and fairy tales of the past because the truth will be available for all. Except the World Wide Web is a web of truth and of deceit. And the thing is, no one wants to be the mindless sheep. No one wants to be the person who's following along, being led by powers beyond their control. We want to use our brains. We don't want to be led by wild theories and emotional appeals. So how can we make sure we're dealing with facts and not just emotional appeals, not just with fiction? Even as I was typing this introduction, I got a phone call. It was a spam number, so I didn't check it, but of course they left a voicemail that my social security had been hacked, and if I would just give them my information, they would get it all cleared up for me. All around us are people trying to deceive us, trying to control us. And we come to a story this morning that, does it maybe sound a little bit like the 5G towers? A little bit like, I mean, really, someone died and came back to life? That's a little beyond belief, isn't it? I mean, that sounds like something you might find on some website where you aren't so sure that anything on it is true. The amazing thing is as we look at this story is that's not just questions, minus the web, of course, that we ask today. That's the type of questions the disciples asked when they were told, he's risen. They said, nonsense, that couldn't be true. And so as we come to this story, we're really asking, is it true that Jesus really rose from the dead? Well, we have to look at the facts, not just be led along. And here in Luke 23 through chapter 24, we see some amazing facts. First, in verses 50 through 56, we see that Jesus was clearly dead and buried. Then he was raised on the third day, but then we again ask, who could believe that? But look first in verse 50 of chapter 23, because after Jesus' death, we saw that last time, we're told of this man, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, it's the only time we hear of Joseph in Luke's gospel, and we're not told much about him, but we are told that he was good, he was righteous, and that though he was part of the religious council, the Sanhedrin, he was not going along with them and wanting to put Jesus to death. Not only that, we're told from Matthew's gospel, that he was a very rich man, which kind of fits with him being in the Sanhedrin. Now, all these descriptions of Joseph by Luke are important because as we've gone through Luke's gospel, we've seen over and over that Luke shows the stories of Jesus where Jesus is showing compassion, where he's reaching out to the poor, to the outcast. And yet Luke never does this to the neglect, to the hating of those who are in power, to those who are rich. It's not classist, as though Luke is saying, well, Jesus argued the poor are moral and the rich, they're immoral. Anyone, even a rich man named Joseph, can be a follower of Christ. Jesus is not so concerned about what power do you have, what wealth do you have. He's concerned about what has you. Are you controlled? Are you controlled by him or by your possessions? Well, we see that Joseph went to Pilate, verse 52, and he asked for the body of Jesus. This surely was a very bold, a very daring thing for Joseph to do. We saw how much the whole group of the Sanhedrin, minus Joseph here, wanted Jesus to be put to death. So what are they going to think of him 
when he's wanting to honor Jesus' body. He's going to be an outcast. Joseph is doing what the rich young ruler couldn't do. He loved his possessions. He loved his fame so much that he couldn't give it away. And yet Joseph here is willing to give it all away, to be ridiculed and hated by his group in honor and able to honor Jesus' body. So he takes it down. He wraps Jesus' body in a shroud and he puts it in a tomb in which no corpse had ever been laid. Now, we don't know the dimensions of this tomb, but probably it was anywhere from 18 inches to three feet tall, not the massive rock you see on children's coloring pages with this hole that you could just kind of walk into. You probably would have had to get on your knees, stoop to look into it. And yet, it's interesting, when Joseph first goes to get Jesus' body from the cross, Pilate is skeptical. He says, he couldn't have died this quick, could he? And so he sent, and he had them verify, and they even pierced Jesus' side to prove, to verify his death. And we see that Joseph isn't doing any of this in secret. In fact, the women, they know exactly what he's doing. So verse 55 and 56, they're able to follow him, though they then have to stop because it's getting dark, and it is the beginning of the Sabbath, which they are going to observe. As you read through the four Gospels, It's very interesting to note what does each gospel talk about. As you study them, you can see different themes. You can see different emphases in each gospel. You may not think it's very important, but consider some of the things that we think are vital to understanding Christ that are not in every gospel. Only Matthew and Luke say anything about Mary being visited by angels and mention Jesus' birth. No mention in Mark or John of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Only Matthew and Luke have the Sermon on the Mount, which many consider the most important teaching of Jesus. Only Luke has the parable of the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. Again, stories that people, oh, that's essential to understand Jesus, and yet three of the Gospels don't include it. Only John has all of the I am statements. And Jesus' words on the cross, what he did on the way to the cross, the conversations he had, you can read all the Gospels, and they each have different elements. All of them true, but all of them not giving the full account. None of them exhaustively telling it. All of them giving us a beautiful mosaic together. And we could go on looking at the various things they don't all include. But interestingly, they all include that Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body and buried it. Why in the world would that be such a significant thing? Jesus' birth is not necessarily recorded, but we need to include Joseph burying Jesus. Why would that be such a big deal? Well, because Jesus came to die. And this shows that he died. Now, you may not think this is really that big a deal, but some people, even till today, still try and deny the resurrection because did Jesus really die? One common argument is that, well, Jesus actually didn't die. He fainted. Or he went into a semi-coma. And then when he went into the cool garden in the rock that was carved up, carved out, or maybe given some medicine, he revived. And then he kind of slinked off to finish his life in isolation. We don't really know anything about him. Perhaps, but the men who detailed this were not just common men. First, who wrote this? Well, Luke, who was a doctor who surely understood 
what death was. And he even told us in the beginning, Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4, that he thoroughly investigated this. You're, once you're an expert in things, you recognize things that others don't. Last week I mentioned one of my friends when he was in college worked for a morgue. And I had fun talking with him about the various things he would do as he picked up dead bodies. And he said, you know, really, you could tell the difference. There's just a look, he said, about a dead person that's different than someone who's alive. And consider again that Pilate was unsure of this. So he had the centurion check. Surely the centurion who dealt with death every day knew when you're hanging on by a thread and when you're dead. Surely they did not misunderstand that Jesus was hanging on. A second common way to avoid Jesus' death is given by Muslims. They claim that God would never kill one of his prophets, definitely not his son. So they claim, some of them teach that what happened is that Simon didn't just carry the cross, but there was kind of, uh, what would they say? There was a spell put over the enemies of Jesus, and Simon went on the cross with Jesus. And Jesus snuck off. And yet, if that's true, why did Jesus have all of these sayings that he was going to die if he was not planning to do it? As well, there's no evidence for it. There's no report that this happened. It's just, well, we don't want to believe Jesus actually died. And so, we see from the four Gospels this clear understanding that we need to realize Jesus died. But not just from the four Gospels, even a few weeks ago. I gave five other non-Christian sources that pointed to the fact that this man from Nazareth named Jesus was killed. And so it's a fact of history. This man from Jesus, this man from Nazareth named Jesus was put to death. However, there's another interesting fact. And that is, though he was put to death, though clearly we knew where his tomb is, his body is no longer there. We see that next in verses 1 through 8, raised on the third day, because though we know where his tomb was, where they knew where it was, the body is not there. Because we see verse 1, the women eagerly go to anoint Jesus' body. They got up early on this first morning of the week. Now, what is about to happen is so significant that it changes these deeply rooted Jews into a new day of worship on Sunday. For example, in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20, verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, when we are gathered together to break bread. Now, as I'm saying this, you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Who cares that we've switched from worship on a Saturday to worship on a Sunday? You know, we're a society of breaking the rules. That's what we want to do. And so pff, they broke a rule Saturday to Sunday. No big deal. And yet they are so fastidious about this, the women who wanted to go anoint Jesus' body wouldn't even show up for a whole day. You know, they were focused on obeying. You know, Neither they nor Jesus were unconcerned about the rules. We read in Luke 4 that Jesus' habit, his custom, was to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. These women, and we see throughout, they were concerned about the Sabbath. Now, yes, Jesus clearly helped them. He showed them how you could abuse the Sabbath, but he never did it to say the Sabbath was unimportant. In fact, he clearly said, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He clearly said, your righteousness must 
exceed the Pharisees. He was not trying to say the Sabbath was unimportant. Yet, shockingly, within a year, these deeply rooted Jews will switch from honoring the Sabbath on a Saturday to a Sunday. Well, why? What would lead them to change a practice that had existed for millennia? Well, they changed because of what happened in verse 2 and beyond. Because when they showed up, the stone was rolled away. You know, that's not the only thing. They didn't see a stone rolled away and go, oh, let's change our worship practice. No, as well, along with that, verse 3, they didn't find Jesus' body. Again, those two facts alone don't ex- explain this because they were perplexed, we're told. They didn't know what to think about this. In fact, it gets worse because verse 4, their perplexity changed to astonished fear because they see two men in dazzling apparel. Now, as we continue reading, next week we'll look, about, look at the story where Jesus meets some disciples on the road to Emmaus. And if you look at verse 23, we'll see that they describe these two men as angels. Angels are not always with wings. They're not always how they're drawn in pictures. Sometimes they have the appearance of humans. And here, these two men appear, but with such radiant clothing that the women bow to the ground. And these men question them, though. They say, why do you seek the dead? Why do you seek the living with the dead? They're subtly rebuking them. They continue saying, He's not here, but he has arisen. And they go on, they say, look, you shouldn't have been surprised by this. Jesus told you this was going to happen when he was with you in Galilee. He told you he was going to be handed into the hands of sinful men. He told you he was going to be crucified, and he told you he was going to rise again. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Luke 9, 44. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Luke 18, 31 through 33. We're going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, on the third day, he will rise. You know, Jesus had told them this was going to happen. And yet, they didn't remember. They didn't believe. And yet now, as they hear this, verse 8, we're told they remember Jesus' words. So what caused them to eventually change their day of rest, the Sabbath, from a Saturday to a Sunday? It was that Jesus died and rose again, and he had told them that this was going to happen. And the one who came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, rose on a Sunday, showing a new day of worship. So they didn't move from obeying God's word. They moved to applying that obedience in a new way, applying it on the day that the word that had become flesh rose again. It was not rebellion. It wasn't superstition or emotionalism that led to them changing their day of worship, but the risen Christ and his word that led them to this change. This really reminds us something really important, and that is the essential nature of not just seeing signs, but having those 
signs, those heavenly spiritual experiences explained to us by God. Right now, you could get put, publish a new book of someone who died and went to heaven and came back, and we would eat it up as a society. Oh, wonderful. They had this deep experience. They've gone to heaven. They can tell us what it's like. And yet we have something more sure than any person experience. And those experiences are only as good as they are in line with God's word. You see, the women came to the tomb and were perplexed, but when did they have understanding? When God's word explained to them their experience. And we can all experience the same thing, but not all understand it. Two Wednesdays back, we were at our house, and Eb was talking about the difference of Brian's piano playing and Corbin's. And I said, uh, I just heard people playing the piano. And he went on to all these different things, I don't even remember, it's so over my head, about this person does this, and this person does this, and some people who knew things about music were like, oh yeah, that's right, and oh, I didn't notice that, and I'm going, it's a piano, and they kind of hit their fingers on it, and we sing, well, they're playing the piano, what's the big deal? Eb was able to explain the difference. He had a commentary on piano playing, and for those who had ears to hear, not me, they could understand, oh, there are different. You know, we experience things, but we need them explained to us. And God's word explains the resurrection. What, what does this empty tomb mean? We don't have to sit back and guess. God's word that was given to us by the Son of God. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. This is why I did it. Then the word that Jesus inspired through his apostles, who he said, the Spirit will come and instruct you. So then we can understand what is the resurrection about. It's been given to us because we need God's word to understand our experiences. And that is why the women and the men who experienced this then said, you know what? Jesus rising from the dead was to fulfill and transform the law. So we want to honor the Sabbath, but we're going to do that by worshiping on Sunday. So we lead lives based on what is being said through the word. You know, I also should briefly note, if you went home this afternoon and you read Matthew 27, Mark 15, John 19 of these various resurrection accounts, you might notice some details that are stated differently in each one. Sometimes we read of two angels or two men, or sometimes we read of one. Sometimes multiple names of women are given. Here we have three names. Sometimes only one woman's name is given. Some gospels tell of Peter and John running to the tomb, but here we only read of Peter. So some people go from this, well, look, get out your ten hats, people. They can't even get the story straight. How could we believe this? There's four accounts, and they're all so different. Well, many of you work on Shepherd Air Force Base or go there regularly, and you have the experience every time you go that when you get there, you go to the gate, and you show them some form of identification, and they let you in. If someone said, well, what happened this morning? And you went and said, well, I got to the gate. I showed the guard my ID. He scanned it, and I went in. That would be true. However, if you went back and said, well, I went up, and there were two guards, and I chose to go through the lane on the right instead of the lane on the left, and that guard scanned my ID, and I went in. That would also be true. Now, was the first one lying because you didn't mention the two guards that you chose which one you'd go to? Well, no, just wasn't exhaustive. You also didn't tell them about the time you went over the speed bump 
and all the other things you could have said. Just because the Gospels aren't exhaustive in every detail of the resurrection does not mean they're lying. In fact, they give us one clear, coherent picture. And if we want to see the big picture, we see eight things. I get these from Daryl Bach. First, they're all showing us that the resurrection, though not described in detail, like at what moment did he arise, they don't give us those details. They all tell us that it happened. Second, the resurrection occurs to disciples who did not expect it. Every gospel is clear about that. This was not expected. Three, reports of the resurrection are doubted. Not only do they not expect it, but then they go, eh, couldn't have happened. Four, the women's visit is the first step in disclosure. All of them are clear. The women were the ones who went to the tomb. Five, the rolled away stone is the first physical clue. Six, angels appear. Seven, Jesus appears to a variety of people, individually, corporately, male and female. All of the Gospels tell that. And eight, the result is an unshakable conviction in Jesus' resurrection. And so, yes, we don't need to hide and go, oh, there's various accounts. None of the accounts is giving us an exhaustive account. All of them are helping us get the full picture so we can know with certainty that Jesus rose from the dead. And so we'll see that these facts lead them to believe. These facts lead them, but yet you might still be thinking, eh, I don't know, this sounds a little too tinfoil hat for me. And you have to realize if you're skeptical, you're in good company. Because one of the most shocking things is that when the women come to the disciples, they write them off. We see that Lastly, verses 9 through 12, they basically ask, who could believe that? Third section, who could believe that? Because the women, they eagerly return. They come and says they told all to the disciples, the 11 disciples, because now Judas is gone. And it says the rest. The rest could be two. Could we read of two going to Emmaus who heard this, or it could be up to 120. We're not sure. Either way, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary of James, and these other women, multiple a group come and tell the disciples now this is important because by deuteronomy you need two witnesses to confirm a case well they have way more than two they got a group of women in other words these people these disciples are being given clear and complete evidence but notice verse 11 how they respond but these words seem to them an idle tale or your version may say nonsense. In fact, it's a medical term Luke used. He was a doctor. It's a medical term for when the very sick have delirious talk, where they start talking nonsense. Perhaps you've taken someone in for surgery and they've given them some pre-anesthesia, or they're waking up and they say all types of things. You can go on YouTube and watch all kinds of funny videos of people saying nonsense as they are in this sick state, as they're not fully aware of what's going on. And yet no one then takes those videos and tries to argue with them. Well, you once said, remember, that I was under anesthesia. I wasn't talking real. It doesn't make sense. And yet that's exactly what the disciples think of these women. <laughs> this is hilarious. What you, no, that couldn't have happened. This is nonsense. And this is not just then. 
It continues. Look down at verse 19. As there, these two men, these two disciples who are in this room, they're walking to this town called Emmaus, and this man, who we'll learn is Jesus, comes up and says, what are you all talking about? And it says, we're talking concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But notice this, but we had hope, past tense that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. So later in the day, after they've heard these women, they're walking along and they still think that's past. Jesus is gone. We had hoped in him. He's dead. It's been three days. It's over. There is no hope left. Their hope was that Jesus would come and redeem Israel and it has not happened, at least not in the way they think it should have. And so to consider the claims of Jesus, we have to come to grips with this reality, the reality that none of the followers of Jesus thought this would happen. Not the women. They weren't going to be the first ones to see the risen Christ. They were going to anoint his dead body. Not the disciples. They're all hiding. And when they're told, they think it's nonsense. Not the larger group of disciples. None of them expected this to happen, but rather they hid in fear. Uh, shoot forward a couple of months. Imagine we're at the beginning of December, and you're talking to one of your adult friends, and they all of a sudden say, I really can't wait for what Santa's going to give me this year. <laughs> That's funny. And yet they keep going on about how they've been really good this year, and they think this year Santa's going to actually take their list and give them everything. You kind of look at them, and you kind of, ah, and they keep going. And finally, like, what are you talking about? Well, uh, didn't you send your list to Santa? Like, I stopped believing in Santa when I was five. You don't believe in Santa? I mean, you would look at them like, this is ridiculous. What, what are you, you're an adult. How can you think Santa's going to bring you presents? This is how the disciples are considering the claims that Jesus rose from the dead. And if we don't come to grips with that, we won't understand what a shock it was that they actually believed the resurrection. They did not go, oh, yeah, saw that one coming. They think it's nonsense. You couldn't believe this. And perhaps you're even still there. And the reality is we should be skeptical. Let's not kid ourselves into thinking resurrection, that's not a big deal. Yeah, someone died and they came back to life. Sure, happens all the time. No, it doesn't. You know, perhaps we could find people who didn't have a heartbeat for five minutes or someone who didn't breathe for 10 minutes and we could go and we could prove this we could not go and find someone who had been buried who had been dead and now they come back to life over a day this is not normal not only just come back to life but come back to life healthy now yes jesus still had nail-pierced hands that he could show to Thomas, but he's able to walk, he's able to talk, he's able to eat. He has a restored body. I mean, someone who just went through crucifixion wouldn't be able to do that. Something miraculous had to happen. Who could believe that? Well, the reality is the disciples didn't, and they didn't believe it, and they couldn't believe it until they were face-to-face -face 
not just with facts, but face to face with Jesus himself. Thomas gets a pretty bad rap as though he's doubting Thomas. They were all doubting. They all wanted to see Jesus. Thomas just had to say it, so now he's publicly known for doubting. And yet, even Thomas eventually believed. Well, why? Why would these complete skeptics become believers? Well, it's because of the evidence. First, Jesus did die. Second, his body is no longer there. The tomb is empty. Third, the angelic messengers reminded them that Jesus told them this was going to happen. And fourth, they gained more evidence. We see that even in verse 12 because Peter goes, and he goes to look at the evidence. Well, is this really true? I'm not just going to believe this. And he goes in and he sees not just an empty tomb, he sees clothes lying there. So some argue, well, they just stole Jesus' body. Well, if they stole it, why would they take the time to unwrap him and steal a naked body? That doesn't make any sense. They would have taken him. So why are the clothes there? And so Peter leaves marveling. We need to be clear. Marveling is not necessarily faith. Last week we noted how sorrow alone is not the response we should have to Jesus' death. It should be sorrow mixed with repentance and submission. And marveling is great, but it can't stay there. The marveling needs to move to faith. Now, the point is I'm not trying to rush you into something. Think, reflect, consider like the disciples did, but we can't just be going, oh, that's pretty cool. We then must believe and repent. So then how is it they, they moved from marvel to faith? Well, it's because, as we'll see next week and the week after, that Jesus appeared to them as a group and then to others, even up to 500 people. And so the evidence was clearly there that changed these skeptics into believers. And yet even now, 2,000 years later, skeptics still exist. This last year, a seminary president said, the message of Easter is that love is stronger than life or death. There's a much more awesome claim than that they put Jesus in the tomb and three days later he wasn't there. That seems to be a pretty wobbly faith. What if tomorrow someone found the body of Jesus still in the tomb? Would that mean that Christianity was a lie? No, faith is stronger than that. Well, that's a bunch of nonsense. If today we found the body of Jesus, then yes, Christianity is a lie. That is the reality. And the Apostle Paul realized that 2,000 years ago. And yet, you can be a seminary president. You can call yourself a Christian minister and say, ah, but what the resurrection means is nothing about a body or anything like that. It's about this message of love. Well, yes, there is a message of love in it, no doubt. However, if the body could have been found. Why didn't Pilate or the religious leaders get it then? It was clear where the tomb was. That's why they all talk about all that the Gospels say, Joseph of Arimathea buried it. They could have got Joseph. They could have said, you're going to show us. Take us right there. We can look up the deed, which, one, which tomb you purchased. And yet it wasn't there. They couldn't bring the body of Jesus. They won't bring it today because it's not there. If this was all a lie, we have to ask, well, then why would these 11 disciples, almost every single one of them, then go die for it? 
Well, yes, we should admit many people die for things that are lies. People are dying today for religious things that are untrue. However, they die believing them to be true. Surely of the at least 10 disciples who were put to death for this, surely one of them at the very end would say, okay, I confess. We just made it up. We just wanted to have some power, which doesn't make any sense anyways. But surely one of them would have said that. Like, hey, you don't actually have to put me to death. I'll, I'll confess. This was a ruse. No, all of them went from fear to faith. Why? Well, because the evidence that compelled them. You see, the women and the disciples did not believe in the resurrection because they wanted to. They didn't believe in the resurrection because they had some emotional experience. It was not just that now he lives within my heart, though he does. As we have seen, they were completely unarmed, completely unprepared and unwilling to believe this sort of thing unless they were confronted face to face with Jesus. The fact that Jesus was there in their midst is what led them to believe. The Apostle Paul, again, he realized this. He says, if we don't, if the resurrection is not true, he says, our faith is in vain. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, the issue of Jesus' resurrection is not just considering the facts about it. If you leave here more convinced, okay, yes, Jesus rose from the dead, but you actually don't believe and actually don't build your life on that, you're still in danger. Let's be clear, the demons believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They know that happened but they don't live in accordance to God. They don't submit to God. You know, the question as Paul raised is where is your hope? Where are you building your life? The Heidelberg Catechism gets to the heart of this with its very first question. What is your only comfort, or I would add hope, in life and in death? And it then answers that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, who assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. You know, hope, hope that's not a wish and a great moral example, but hope that Jesus actually did conquer sin and death by rising again. You know, the, the hope that because of Christ and what he did, the suffering and agony of this life does not have the final word. You know, we don't trust a philosophy we trust in a risen savior who did die and rise again in all of our aches in all of our heartaches in all of the destruction that we see around this world we place our hope in what is sure you know i'm not talking about a little faith and trust and pixie dust here i'm talking about looking at the facts and building your life upon them. Faith that is not, how can we come up with a way to understand God, but 
A faith in which God came down and said, I'm going to make a way that man can know me. That's what we're talking about. You had dead Jesus is a Jesus in which no hope or trust should be placed. Yet the risen Jesus, who now sits at the right hand of the Father and who will come again and who will reign over all, that's one in whom we can hope and securely put our trust. You know, we can confidently, we can boldly say he is risen, not out of fanciful wish, but out of factual reality. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And Lord, we know that blood and righteousness paid the price, that it secured our ransom. And we know because your Son rose again. Oh Lord, we don't want to be led by idle tales. We don't want to be led along as sheep. We want to follow the truth. And we know that your son is truth. And so would you guide us? Would you inspire us to be people who follow you through the thick and thin, knowing that death, that suffering in this life does not have the final word, but through your son, new life, eternal life exists for those who follow you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.